The Landlord and Lawyer Podcast with Ben Beadle and Tessa Shepherdson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Landlord and Lawyer Podcast. He's Ben Beadle. He's the landlord. And she's Tessa Shepherdson. She's the lawyer. And today we have a fascinating guest. We're going to be talking to Julie Rugg of the University of York. Yeah, Dr. Julie Rugg. No Dr. Less. Julie yeah, Rugg. Yeah, let's so. give her a full title. And um, I think listeners will will know that Julie's been around uh, a fair bit with uh, various uh, academic uh, reports on the private rented sector. Um, uh, adds a great deal of uh, academic rigor to uh, uh, the discussion around the private rented sector. And uh, and she's a really good egg, actually. And I think it's really interesting to get the insight from her her research and the most recent one is around um, housing benefit and the sort of lower end of the market and uh, no doubt we will get and get on and interrogate her on that. Okay well let's go on to get on with it then. Hello everybody and welcome and we are delighted to have as our guest today Julie Rugg who has been writing reports on the private rented sector for quite some time. Julie, um, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and explain who you are and what you do? And um... Yeah, okay. So I'm Julie Rook. I work at the Centre for Housing Policy at the University of York. And that's the kind of like a research institution that sits within the university. So I don't do teaching. We just do reports. And we, we kind of do reports in some ways by, you know, for whoever pays us to do reports. So there is that. But um, much of our work, much of my work has really been focused on the private rented sector. So when I first mm-hmm. started, oh, way back in the early 90s, my uh, boss at that time, Professor Peter Kemp, was the national expert in the private rented sector. And, and he led me into that area of interest. And it's something that I've kind of maintained since that time. So there's, there's three, two or three things that I'm particularly interested in. I, I'm a kind of... Um, qualitative researcher so I'm really interested in housing behavior so I'm interested in what people do in housing and how their relationships form in housing what landlords do what tenants do and and how that's reflected in regulation so I think it's really interesting that sometimes regulations framed on what some idealized notions of things which are not necessarily reflecting behaviors about what happens so there's that um, so there's all of the sort of understanding behaviours, understanding kind of policy implementation. So you can set the law, but how do you apply it? You know, and the kind of mismatches that happen between what the law intends to do and then how it's applied in practice. And then what happens around the outside of it, you know, in terms of what other behaviours it provokes. I think it's quite interesting. And then other, the, other bits I'm really very interested in have been in for a long time is about how housing benefit influences the private rental sector. So centuries ago, some centuries ago, we did the evaluation of the introduction of local housing allowance, which has kind of seems wow. such a long time ago now. Um, and, and looking at really the impact of housing benefit on the bottom end of the market, I think is really important to us just, just at the moment and is, is kind of one of the subjects of the report that I've just finished. Indeed. Yeah, because you've there, there's probably two reports that we will we'll touch on in this podcast. There's your most recent report, mm-hmm. which is... Um, which is about the, the lower end of the market. And mm-hmm. then you before that, you did a very interesting report on, was it the shadow, what was it called, the shadow private rented sector? It was looking at a shadow private rented sector. It's really very, very interesting work um, that was done with Cambridge Housing. So Cambridge Housing is a housing kind of rights charity. They do a lot of environmental health work, a lot of tenancy relations work. And and we were really sort of focusing in on criminality. So um, I'm kind of very firmly of the view that, that there are criminal landlords and there are landlords who are, so there are landlords who are criminals and there are criminals who are landlords, you know, that, that there is that kind of going on. We're trying to raise some funding to look at that in more detail. I'm working with some criminologists at the moment um, because there is that going on in that part of the market. It's like a shadow PRS and it's got its own economics. It's got its own practices and, 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 in its drawing in certain types of victim, I think are really important. And it's not just London. I think somebody said, oh, it's just a London problem. But I've been talking to local authorities throughout the uh, Yorkshire region, and they're all saying, yeah, it still looks very familiar to us. Yes, I mean, I I used to work with um, Ben Reeve Lewis, who wrote quite a bit on this, and he wrote a very interesting series of articles for my my blog about um, how 
um, criminal landlords target people who will be underneath the radar so that they won't be found out and that the, the criminal uses to which they put mm. um, properties and also the confusing names you know they keep changing their names phoenix companies and, and that sort of yeah. thing which is i mean it, it exists doesn't it ben i mean we'd rather it didn't but there's it, it definitely exists uh, mm. uh, you know we'd be in denial uh, to a ludicrous mm. degree if uh, we didn't accept that it, it, it doesn't exist and i think it's one of the things actually julie that kind of unites everybody yeah everybody mm. gets really hacked off by those uh, individuals, I, I don't call them landlords, even though they may purport to be landlords, but those, those criminals who, you know, absolutely, you know, take uh, tents for a, 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 a ride and rip them off and um, keep them in unsafe conditions and don't comply with, you know, the, the very basics. And I think that's one area that, you know, the industry is absolutely united on is mm. you know ridding ourselves of those that that bring the sector into disrepute but you know as, as everybody has observed over mm. the past few decades it's it's easier said than done isn't it and how do you do that whilst at the same time acknowledge that there are really good landlords out there that you know we saw from the english housing survey last week you know 83 percent satisfaction yeah. amongst tenants well that's great but we still have a problem around you know the edges <laughs> and the margins and, and and so forth and you know i don't know if you want to touch on it but about around where you see the prs is at the moment because mm -hmm. i, I kind of think we're at a little bit of a turning point as we enter into the white paper i think we mm -hmm. could see some quite interesting developments over uh, over the course of the next six nine months as that white paper is finalized mm -hmm. but how would you characterize the prs at the moment julie well, I mean, just talking about that and picking that up just a little bit, I think every legitimate market has got a black market. That's the way of the world. Yep. That's how it is. You know, so it doesn't matter. And I think what we've got to acknowledge that the PRS has its own black market it, of, of people who are acting completely with no regard for regulation. But the, the, the issue that the PRS has got is that people presume that that shadow market is the market, that that's, that's what landlords are like. And I think yes. the problem that, that the sector has is it, it provokes such radically um, strong feeling amongst people. And that strong feeling um, kind of precludes any notion that, that um, those feelings need to be kind of evidence. We need to sort of understand what is really going on. Because a lot of people... Um, they're strong the strength of their feeling is taken as sufficient evidence it's understandable because it's someone's home and you know i've read some terrible yeah. stories about dreadful things that have happened to tenants and i can quite understand their strong feelings but because yeah. that doesn't mean that all landlords are like that no no but i think it's it's because and i think one of the issues that's come with the renters reform bill is actually it's kind of ratcheted up that emotion because mm. The, the feeling is that um, there is a greater possibility that something might happen. It's ratcheted up the emotion that sits around this. You're exactly right. It is somebody's home, so it's really important. But the emotion that's starting to build is then just completely underlining all of these sort of images that we have of the sector. And OK, we might have legislation that passes, but we've, we've coloured the sector in much, much darker. You know, in the process and actually might have made people feel even more vulnerable than when they started because of the strength of rhetoric that the discussion has provoked so that, that's the kind of concern for me that 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 some people um some groups will never be satisfied that private landlords exist yeah, indeed and that's yeah. The problem. yeah yeah. That's not helping us really. But, but so that's got... not going to be something that is ever going to go away is it you know uh i think well put my own view across here that uh, you know there may well be less landlords in in the future potentially if the corporate uh, market really takes off as it as it you know as it was forecast to do although it's maybe slightly slower at the moment than than, than envisaged but there's always going to be property owning individuals out mm. there um, so the ideology that uh, you know, landlords um, uh, are, are not here for, for the long term, I'm afraid, is, is probably a false mm -hmm. one. They'll be operating in a, a different environment. It may not be as lucrative as it, as, mm -hmm. as it once was. The, the regulation may be more onerous. But, the, you know, that sort of fundamental ideology, Julie, is, is, is probably misguided, I, I suggest. I mean, the yeah, trouble I'll... is, practically, if you don't have a private rented sector, what do you put in its place? I mean, mm -hmm. most of the private, the, the social sector has been sold off. And 
it's impossible, whatever the Conservative Party <laughs> say, it's impossible for, for a, a large number of people to buy their own homes because they can't afford it or possibly because they don't want to. So, you know, if you don't have landlords in the private rented sector, where are these people going to live? I think the thing about the, the PRS that, that's, that's, that's kind of its, its kind of weakness and its strength simultaneously is that, that I'm completely tenu in some ways, very tenuous. Change my mind already in the middle of the sentence, <laughs> right? In the sense that I think the PRS is often the size it, it kind of needs to be in some ways. So at the minute, um, or we've seen big growth in response to the failure of owner occupation because of mortgage restrictions and the reduced in, the reduced um, investment in social housing. That's that's the reason why the PRS has, has expanded to meet that need, and as investment increases, and actually we've seen a lot more people getting onto the housing ladder then it's going to start to contract. That, that's kind of what's going to happen. But I think the, the, the kind of question that we've got at the moment is, is how the sector is reconfiguring. So that's, for me, is the really interesting question. And I'm, I'm very fond of analogies, which always get me into trouble. But the analogy I always like to use is the analogies of supermarkets, you know, that, that actually a lot of small landlords are like the corner shop. You know, we were very sad that our corner shop sort of like closed down because the guy in there knew who we were, you know, and he knew what we liked he made sure it was in and you know if we didn't i forgot to set my purse he'd say it's okay pay it tomorrow it's fine all of those things that's the kind of relationship you know he knew what the what the area liked um probability i mean he's gone and now just up the road we've got a big supermarket that's opened its corner shop and, and much as i know the people in there because i'm going there <laughs> um it's not the same because it's a big supermarket brand and it's sitting there on the corner and i think we have we've got space for all of these things we've got the big stores we need space for that we need the smaller stores we need to, but i think the space for all of these different providers and i think um certainly we've got some people who shouldn't be in the market because they're really bad at what they do um and the, the problem that we have at the minute is this mismatch of supply and demand means that the market's not working very well and that's the problem so so i think a lot of the issues that we've got aren't really about the private rented sector at all they're about mismatches and um, in other areas wider housing market yeah so i think um so i think that's the you know you're sort of saying where are we at the moment i think we're, we're in a period of change i think this change is quite hard to keep up with sometimes um that the way that this particular change is happening um and i think even five years down the line i think the world will look very different to what it is at the minute so do you have any but, thoughts about what the changes are likely to be well, I think I think I agree with with Ben in, in thinking that we'll probably see um, this report that I've just finished that was looking at the bottom end of the private rented sector. Um, it, it was kind of echoing this this kind of feeling that we were kind of beginning to appreciate is that that landlords are with, with kind of withdrawing from the market. Smaller landlords are withdrawing from the market, not necessarily big stepping away, but they're not expanding. Mm. And we've got a big cohort of let's call them baby boomer landlords who are just aging out of the market. You know, we are interviewing landlords in their seventies. <laughs> they're saying we're not, you know, we're not expanding our holdings just at the minute. It's hardly worth it. You know, even if we catch gas, but you know, we have the cash to do it, but we're not going to do that. So they're just selling down very gradually and enjoying enjoying their kind of income. So I think we've, we're we're not at the position at the minute where we're seeing those people massively expanding their portfolios as they did, you know, in the years back. Um, Pre-RS, um, the regulatory framework is a lot, I keep saying it's a lot less benign. So I think absolutely landlords have to fess up and say, we've had it easy. <laughs> we have. Yeah. Very easy to get, very easy for us to get mortgage finance, the regulatory framework. I'm not saying it was unregulated, but it was a lot less um, rigorous, a lot less scrutiny than there is now. Um, I think the recent regulations that sit around um, criminal penalties for landlords, I think have created a different feeling around being a landlord. But this is something you've really got to take quite seriously yeah. because if you get it wrong, actually the implications are quite serious now. And I don't think, in some ways, I don't think that's a bad thing because yeah. I want an agreement. We want the people who are staying in the sector to be the people who are really good at it. Yeah, I mean, I think one, one aspect, I mean, one of the problems that there's been with regulation for many years is that local authorities simply haven't had the funding or the staff to do it. But now with the introduction, um, for example, of um, rent repayment orders, um, mm. tenants can 
obtain rent repayment orders against landlords, for example, who haven't applied for an HMO license or perhaps if they haven't um, complied with uh, an improvement notice. And um, that they tenants are becoming more aware mm. of, of these rights that they have. Um, and that's no bad thing at the same time, is it? You know, it's you know, you actually as a landlord, you want somebody that's bothered to read the contract that knows what their obligations are. Um, yeah. You know, I wouldn't go so far as to say hold hold your feet to the fire, but you, know, you want an informed client, don't you? Um, because actually, if you have somebody that is informed, it makes it a much more sensible transaction. Um, and you know, frankly, it tenants should be aware of the rules and regulations out there that affect their tenancy and often what we hear is you know um uh, that the provision of information is quite you know um uh, difficult you know, people don't know what their rights are and and so forth so yeah you know, i don't think as uh, as as property owners we should worry about you know dealing with a more informed individual actually it's all the more reason for us as property owners as business owners to make sure that we are doing things properly we keep up to date and we you know whatever the changing world is whether we agree with it or disagree with it it's inevitable mm -hmm. so get on and you know embrace it and because uh, I, I still think um Jude, as you say you know you look back and think that landlords may well have had it easy the the, the rewards will still be there i appreciate there's some people that have been badly burnt during covid but you know um stick money in the bank you're not going to get a, a better uh, return are you so you know you just have to weigh up whether you've got the appetite for it frankly no, I think you're exactly right. And I think we, the, the interviews are really interesting because we asked, um, you know, would you, would you advise somebody to get into this business? You know, and what would you say to them if somebody, if somebody said... So, know, so these were the ones. interviews that you did when you were doing your most recent report? This is the most recent work, yeah. And so we were interviewing landlords, and this was actually during last, last year. So we were interviewing landlords over the summer last year. Uh -huh. um, so it's very recent. And, and actually, the thing that most surprised me was that most landlords were, were saying, yeah, you can make a good business out of it, but the risks are increased. So they weren't saying that there were problems financially because you could make it work financially, but the problem sat around the risk and the hassle. And, and actually, um, you, know, you know, a couple of the guys who were sort of saying, you know, yeah, OK, you might get a better return than stocks and shares, but the risks, you know, if you... It goes if you wrong. If it goes wrong, the personal, I mean, and some people had lost a lot of stocks and shares, and that was the reason why they're in property. But thinking, yeah. actually, you know, something very simple, somebody was, I'm just going to put it in premium bonds. Yeah. <laughs> they don't give me any hassle, you know, and, and it's, you know, if you invest enough in premium bonds, that's the kind of return you might get. So I think, so landlords weren't saying you can't make money out of it. But what they were saying was, as you were rightly said about appetite, you've really got to have quite, um, You've got to be quite confident in your appetite for it. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's the big thing. And you've got yeah. to understand actually what it is going to mean. You know, we've mm -hmm. spoken in the past, Julie, about the tax changes for landlords, which I'm not going to get on my uh, soapbox about today. But, you know, landlords that are investing, you know, they do need to have a, a, a full appreciation of the fiscal and taxation environment that mm -hmm. it's going to mean for them individually. I always mm -hmm. say to landlords, yeah, by all means invest. But if you have you done your calculations, is it worth it? Um, mm. And that's a very individual conversation, isn't it? Depending on if you're on a, a band of a, a you know, the, the tier of the, or sorry, on the cusp of the of the tier yeah. above, it can have yeah. you know quite different impacts on individuals. Absolutely, I and mean, that's one of the things we found was that some landlords were just on that cusp. And there was in one more property, and actually all the profits from that will go in tax, so it's literally not worth yeah. it. No. So we're just going to sit slightly below. And that's where we'll stay. You know. And tell me, Julie, I'm interested in this point, you know, that this was actually brought in to cool the market somewhat, wasn't it? You know, it was simply a revenue raiser um, uh, to, to try and cool a little bit you know, of the investment in this area. What, what's your take on, 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 on that? Do you think it's worked? I don't know. I think I think it is the kind of thing that you'd want to sit down with a fiscal economist and say, let's just talk this through in more detail, because I think there are lots of things that uh, I'm not a fiscal economist. So so the thing that I think is particularly interesting to me is the availability of the interest only mortgage. Yeah. So interest only mortgages means that, that landlords can operate at quite low cost because paying an interest only mortgage is going to be a lot less costly than paying a repayment mortgage, obviously. 
and and the sort of financial models that we were seeing that was that landlords could still expand quite rapidly um, through remortgaging and then just paying an interest-only mortgage. So that actually, their operating costs could be quite low. So. Um, in some regard, you could say, yes, OK, it's taken some of the heat out of the market um, because it's restricted landlords' ability to just completely, just to continue yeah. expanding. So um, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm still of the view that I think landlords, yes, the taxation framework's there, but being able to offset an interest-only mortgage against your tax, I still think, oh, to me, it doesn't sit quite right with me still, you know, that, that immorally. In, in terms of saying you can offset your 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 big mortgage your big in business cost you can offset it against your tax i think it's there's still a um a kind of an unbalance that sits there that that certainly somebody who's trying to own their own home doesn't get doesn't see that advantage and i think the the big problem is that the the, the government doesn't doesn't understand what renting is is it an investment is it a business yeah. and i think it needs to sort itself out one way or another and decide that it's going to sort of deal with it. My, my view is that, yes, it should really be dealing with it as a business. And I think there should be a slightly different approach to it in those terms, because I think we've moved away from that, that sort of like that, you know, that pre-global financial crisis world where people are doing a lot of property investments. You know, we have those property programmes on all the time that said, look, you buy a terrace, you put £15 worth of investment in it and tomorrow it's going to be worth £20,000 more because we don't live in that world anymore. No, we don't. Um, but, but an awful lot of the attitudes sit around the notion that landlords are doing that, a lot of kind of property flipping. Yes. That's not being a landlord, that's being a property developer. Indeed, absolutely. there's quite a difference, absolutely. There's quite a big difference. Mm. So I think we've got to sort of think about actually if we frame it more purposefully as a business, how do we frame it as a business activity what do we expect landlords to do as business people and what how does that all work so that's that's my kind of i don't know what do you think about that do you think do you think i'm being naive and think that's, that's something that should be thought no about? i mean I, I think one of the things that irritates a lot of landlords is that you're treated um as a business when it when it suits and you're treated as an individual also when it suits and you know um i i, I don't think uh, yeah i think a lot of landlords that we would represent would see themselves as a business i think mm -hmm. you, you have some accidental landlords who probably recognize it, it's um mm -hmm. a, an extension to what they're doing but probably don't see it as a business if they're not in it for the sort of longer mm -hmm. longer yeah, term yeah. Uh, so i do think there is a bit of a difference there but uh, you know i think frankly if you are providing mm. that provision of a of a service to somebody whether mm. you're doing it for one property or or mm. 20 or however many you are a business um yeah. and that comes with a degree of responsibility um i think yeah. um uh, i mean would, would be my view i don't know that i would be representative mm. of, the, of of that of that uh, of that view but that's that's how i see it yeah, I mean, I from the tenant's point of view they are renting a home and there shouldn't be a difference um, in their rights and obligations according no. to who their landlord is. So they shouldn't have different rights and obligations if their landlord is a, a small person who's rented a home, who's inherited a home from granny. Then yeah. if their landlord is a big company that owns hundreds of houses across, you know, John Lewis or something across the country, yeah, yeah. their rights should be the same. It, it, it should be landlord neutral. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I was talking about landlord registration at some forum somewhere, and someone said, "Oh, but only, it shouldn't matter if they just own one, though, should it?" And, and I said, "Well, <laughs> somebody's home. Yeah, <laughs> irrespective of your intent, it's still yeah. who's living there. It is their home, so they should be afforded this exactly the same rights." In your report, Julie, you identified different types of um, landlord in the in the sort of lower sector. Do you want to just sort of quickly take us through that? Yeah, I think it was, it was interesting to me. I mean, it sounds very academic and very nerdy. I always feel very nerdy when I've gone about landlord's characteristics, but they're so important because so much of our legislation has got, they kind of like put a landlord there and they say, this is the landlord. You think, no, it isn't. That is an amalgam. It's like, I don't know, do you remember um, that kind of ice cream that was strawberry, vanilla and chocolate? Neapolitan. Neapolitan ice cream. <laughs> You know, you mush it all up and, it, and it's, it's like beige <laughs> and no flavour, <laughs> you know. So they've got this beige, no flavour landlord. Yeah. It doesn't represent yeah. any kind of landlord in mind. But so I think these are, the, these are the issues as I see them. We've got your accidental landlord, which we talked about. 
they're, they're not coming to the market for very long. They don't accrue any experience. I think that's the big issue. So, um, so my brother was a landlord for a bit because he couldn't sell his house. He bought it limited, you know, and so and he was letting it to his mate, right? And it was all kind of like, and I was thinking, you really should get this sorted out properly. You know, you can't just be letting to a mate. And in the end, I think it lasted, I don't know, six months and then he sold it. But actually it was great for his mate because he'd left his wife and he needed somewhere to live. So, you know, so there you go, all of that. So, but that all needs to be properly regulated, but it's quite short term. And I think one thing that we could maybe think about a bit more is, okay, that can come to the market, but it's really got to come to a letting agent that knows what they're doing. Or well, the letting agent's got to tell the tenant, look, the likelihood is that the landlord will be wanting to sell. Yeah. So if you want short-term tenancy, this is perfect for you. But if you want something longer, I'd look at other properties. Yeah. You know, because that's that's only fair, I think. So that's that's your accidental landlord. And I think they are a little bit problematic, but they bring a lot of property. Yes. And then you move up a bit. And you've got what I'm what I'm in my mind I think of as investor landlord. And the big the big distinguishing thing for me that's really important about this group is that they work for somebody else. They've got earned income. And that creates the stability in their letting kind of procedure because often they're earning quite a lot of money, let's be frank, <laughs> you know, a reasonable amount. They've got good jobs because they're able to invest in property. And they're investing for two or three reasons. They're investing on one side because um, they want to be a landlord. They want some extra money for their pension. That's that's one thing. Sometimes they've just got extra money. They don't know what this sounds. They've got <laughs> so much money they don't know what to do with it. But they've got little bits of capital, and it's easier for them to put it in because they yeah. see a good. Um, and then we've got a third group, and I think this is the interesting group for me: is they're investing in property for their children. So it's not for their own pension. It's because they know their children are going to find it difficult to get on the property ladder mm. further down the line. So they've got that kind of property just waiting there. For their children the issue with the the first couple of groups is that they're going to stay in the sector for ages their ideal is some tenant that's that moves in and lives there for 30 years and just doesn't move and they're you know and they exchange christmas cards everything's lovely the the third group slightly more problematic because that the the, the adult child who wants that property the likelihood is that's going to be quite time specific so that's the group that's more likely to ask a tenant to leave mid-tenancy before the tenant wants to. The first two, chances are you're not going to sell that property until the tenant leaves, because why on earth would you if the tenant's paying rent and you have no current need for the property, you'd leave the tenant in place. Indeed. So, so you know, we, we did come across people who were talking about, yeah, actually, we need that property because my son needs somewhere to live, but the tenants sort of restrict, you know, they really don't want to leave and blah, blah, blah. So we've got your investor landlords there. And I think the thing for us, again, that's really important about this group is that they, they bring their professional competencies to the market. You know, I'm, I'm kind of very wary of talking about amateur landlords because a lot of the landlords that we're talking about, um, they worked in property, they worked in legal things, they worked for local authorities, they worked in professional level activity, which meant actually they understood business, they understood the need to follow the law, <laughs> you know, they understood... Yeah. How to work a spreadsheet you know they kind of they had a strategic view about what they were doing that's them the other group that tends not to be thought about are your basic portfolio landlord this is their job this is their full-time job uh, and i was talking to somebody recently who said well why should landlords put their rents up because they've got no costs and i think well what if they live on that money <laughs> their yeah. rent bills you know their own sort of housing costs are going to go up and their gas bill and their electric bill and they might even be kind of like employing other people so their costs are going to increase and a lot of these landlords were like small businesses you know the couples might be working together you know they have one deals with other books the other does all the plastering that kind of relationship um and actually sometimes two generations you know so that um somebody might inherit property from a parent and the parent's still in the business and that's how they do their work but that kind of like business portfolio landlord again is not this beige landlord you know, that's not not really seen to be a common type of language. And then the final group, which I think was a really important group as well, were, were kind of business landlords who had um, an off, even more money, uh, <laughs> whose who's kind of investment in that property was part of other kinds of business activity. So they might have other non-property related businesses. They'd be using employers to manage their properties. So they'd have an agent. Um, and they might use maintenance crews because the amount of property that they had, we're talking 60 plus properties. And they're thinking really strategically about where, where can I get the best return? Uh, where suits where my team is? 
um, and what looks good to me at the minute. And they're looking at the market. Their job is scanning the market to see where the opportunities are. So they're not necessarily very hands-on. You know, they don't go around and talk to the tenant necessarily, but they do understand where the market opportunities are. So, and they're not big corporations. They're still individuals that are owning that property. And some of them had some very interesting tax issues going on that they were trying to think through. Um, some had resolved those tax issues already. So just talking about those groups, I think actually all of them are kind of like a, not quite a different policy ask, but they all provoke a different policy response. If you want to either... Um, improve their standards or oh, I don't know whatever policy response you want to give to them I don't know do you think that's fair as a as a kind of a summary of landlord types I don't know if you're kind of experts really suppose well, there's the big the, the big commercial landlords exactly. like oh, yeah. the Lloyds I mean, Bank the and, the, and yeah, the John yeah. Lewis that are coming yeah. into the market but yeah we're not yeah, really no, talking I mean, about them yeah we weren't sort of really talking about them but I think that's a different project and so it's a project I'd like to do actually to talk about who how the big money's coming to the market and what they're delivering to the market yeah. and and what tenants feel about that I think it's quite important I, I, I mean yeah I used to work in that environment Julie before I took on on this on this role um, and I think you know as individual landlords there are things that you can learn from those big uh, uh, mm -hmm. corporates who aren't afraid about pets you know who aren't afraid of uh, um, housing benefit uh, and, and those types of things uh, and have just a you know a far more customer focused outlook on right. on on life um that's not to say that you know individual landlords don't i just think you know they worry a lot about you know the, the pets discussion at the moment for me is a bit of a non-starter you know right yeah. uh, and i, th I think you know, individuals could adopt that slightly mm -hmm. more pragmatic uh, uh, approach to life i think that would be one, yeah, one yeah. difference but i think your characterization of the sector is absolutely spot on and i think you know it's one of the the strengths and challenges of the sector in in that you can't just you know pigeonhole landlords as being bang mm. uh, yeah. you know you've got so many different nuances to them and and similarly with renters as well because you know as your reports you know touch on that the, the private rented sector has has become the default destination for everybody pretty much in, mm. in the absence of any sort of new social homes becoming available and it's it's being asked to do things it wasn't intended for mm. and as a result you have to think about the composition of the people that are providing it to you know to, yeah. to, to you know because you know as you say if you're a tenant that's moving into a home of somebody that isn't in it for the for the long haul that there, there's an immediate conflict yeah. there isn't there yeah. and this yeah. is where section 21 comes you know to bite people on on the bum a little bit yeah. Um, uh, and it, it causes knock-on implications. Mm. Whereas if, if the renter knew, actually, yes, it is an individual landlord, but, you know, bear, uh, barring any sort of catastrophe, they're in it for the long haul and, you know, their exit plan isn't until 30 years uh, time, yeah. assuming that's when they, they choose to exit. You know, people can have more informed choices about the type of properties that they, they make, but the, the composition yeah. of the landlord audience is very, very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's the issue, because I think, you know, as you, as you were sort of talking about that, I think it would be a very brave landlord who told a tenant, look, I'm in it for the long haul. I'd like, you know, I'm looking for a really long term tenant, because that if the tenant then proves to be problematic and can come back with, but, but you said I could stay forever. Sure. Then, yeah. then, you know, then you've got a sort of like a, a difficult thing. But I think it was really interesting you saying reflecting back on that kind of more commercial experience. And I think what we need between landlord and tenants is a commercial relationship. Yeah, I agree with sort that. Of like, um, I think the thing that slightly galls me a little bit, you know, you get landlords who feel that they're very good landlords, but actually they're quite paternalistic. And, and that paternalistic, being paternalistic brings it's slightly edge of patronising, but also I know what's best for you, so I'm going to make these decisions for you. When actually, you, as a tenant, you know, it's nice that your landlord's nice, but you'd rather they'd be professional. You want that professional relationship where you can say, look, I'm sorry, but this doesn't work. Can you fix it? Without it suddenly being a kind of like a real issue. And again, you're talking about the pets and the blue tack and those things. You know, I think some landlords have got to lighten up. Yeah, I agree. I honestly, I absolutely agree. The people that that worry about gardens or lawnmowers or blue tack or whatever, I just think, yeah, whatever the rights and wrongs of the agreement are 
get mm. a life a little bit almost you know yeah. it, it is just you know part and parcel of um of renting out your your property i'll just give you my own experiences you know i i i um uh, do student lets and uh Couple, a couple of times during the year, I get a phone call to say the lawnmower isn't working, right? right? And I know why the lawnmower isn't working. It's because they've tried to mow the lawn when it's six foot high and it's a, you know, it's a, a medium sized fly mow. It's never going to do that. And they say, oh, there's smoke coming out of it. You know, I need a new one. So, you know, it, there's no point in me having an argument about who's going to pay for that lawnmower. You know, I, you know, we, we, yeah. we so, so I went I went round to the house at the, at the weekend and I opened the shed and there were four lawnmowers that had died <laughs> of a tragic death over the course of the tenancy. I'd clearly forgotten how many lawnmowers I had I had <laughs> I had bought. But, you know, that you know, that is just one of the things as a student landlord that mm -hmm. Yes, of course, it's the tenant's responsibility to mow the garden. But, you know, when you're 19 or, or, or 20, are you really going to do that? You know, and, and I think you just sort of have to bake those sorts of things in based on the demographic that you're going with. So, you, you know, I'm not the sort of landlord that wants to get nitpicking over a bit of cleaning here or uh, changing a light bulb here. Actually, you know, you're paying me quite a lot of money over the course of the tenancy. I want to keep you happy and I want to make sure that you continue yeah. to pay it and you have a really good experience. And also, you know, <laughs> I've got this job and I don't really want you to uh, mm. wash my dirty laundry in, in public. Thank you very much. <laughs> so I'm going to look think, after you. <laughs> you think, though, that some landlords, I mean, it was a, it was a, a Sarah Beanie thing all over, wasn't it? When she was yeah. saying, you, you, you know, you're kind of like you're, you're investing in this property to suit your own taste and you're over investing in the property. And the sense that I get from some landlords is that they're over investing in a property bring it up to sort of like oh I would I would myself love to live here personal invest, attachment that personal attachment means that they that any issue there's a personal affront yeah you know that's how right. could you possibly do x y and z because um so what would you do about that kind of like landlord attitude you, well, because it's an attitude rather than anything else it is I mean I just think so I, you know, I've I've rented quite a lot of property Julie including my own home that I then went on to um uh sell uh, when mm -hmm. the tenant moved out uh, and I just think the moment you decide to rent the property out you know ap apart from a credit and a debit on your bank account mm -hmm. that is really the only sort of attachment you should have to that property mm -hmm. um, uh you know uh, I see ratcheting up of a rhetoric when somebody is so terribly attached to their property you know I, I you know mm. I lived there for 25 years and you know I did this that and the mm. other and I looked after the you know the mm. plants in the garden and you know if somebody moves in they all died you know, you know uh, mm. it, that, that type of really personal attachment comes back to the fundamental point of are you a business or are you a, an individual yeah. actually and I just think uh, you know if you are in this sector yes you can get het up on you know the rights mm -hmm. and wrongs of what everybody has done but take a business-like approach to yeah. your property and mm. you know yes there will always be people that don't do things um as you would expect but uh, you know I take the view you're not long on this planet Julie and worrying mm. about piddly bits of cleaning and uh, and those types of things honestly you know for me personally yeah. I'm just not I'm just not prepared to lose any uh, any sleep over so I take a, a really mm. crudely business approach to some of these things and frankly it's easier for me to send a gardener around than have an argument with somebody uh, over whether they've broken the mm. lawn mower or should or shouldn't have cut the lawn that that's personally yeah. how I approach it um also but, there, but there I get is that the fact don't. that when you when you rent out a property on a tenancy your tenant has a legal interest in land um a, a tenancy is is um is, is also a lease it's a very short lease but it's a lease and it's it's one of the two legal interests in land that exists under the law property act 1925 here's the lawyer coming down here oh, <laughs> but uh, but it is it is a form of ownership of land like freehold it's not freehold you don't own the land like you would but you do own it you may only have a tenancy for six months but during that six months you have a legal interest in that land you to all intents and purposes own it you've got the right to exclude the landlord and the landlord has a very limited right to tell you what to do when you're in it and i think a lot of landlords don't don't realize that they still think of it as their property and they can do what they like with it, but they can't. They've given mm. it to the tenant in exchange for the right to have rent and get it back at yeah. the end of the fixed term. But during that period, it's not their property. It's the tenants. Mm. My house, your home. Yeah, but I mean, it's not their home. They may have lived in it 
before, but it's the tenants now. Oh, no, they, that's they... what I mean. It's 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 my house as the owner, strictly yeah. speaking. Yeah. But it but but it's your home whilst you are are there. Uh, you know, it's that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I I just think that you know this sort of as soon as you get things. I saw this when I was at, at TDS actually. When mm-hmm. you look at some of the disputes around what, yeah. what deposits are about. Yeah, you can see, actually, you could probably tell the one, the, the landlords that have lived there that have a real sentimental mm. approach to anything that's gone wrong. And I know it's difficult, um, but I just I just think that the moment you choose to rent your property out, you need to have a different outlook. It doesn't matter mm. how you would have looked after it or how you would have, whether you would have dealt with something mm. a different way. The fact of the matter is you've given that property over to somebody and they're going to look after it in the way that they're going to look after it. No amount of jumping up and down is going to really change that. Uh, and yeah. if you don't like that, then then maybe premium bonds is a good option. I mean, do you, yeah. what do you think, Julie, about um, um, landlord education? Because I think part of this is down to landlords not really understanding what they're doing. Mm. Um, I mean, what do you, I mean, we're, we're thinking of bringing in mandatory agent training um, with the ROPO report. I mean, yeah. what do you think about mandatory landlord training so that landlords have a better understanding of what exactly they're doing? Um, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm a, I kind of like, I, I kind of agree. And, um, you know, thinking about your, your, your sort of some landlords who are quite hands off, you know, they might be, you know, have a full time job and all of these things. I think. I think there is, you see, I'm, I'm, I kind of don't even know what I think because there's too many issues coming through my mind. <laughs> so one of the things is, absolutely, yes, I think landlords, even the landlords who are just thinking accidentally, are poorly placed to judge their letting agents' activity. Yeah. And I think that's one issue. So, um, um, you know, there's a sort of family friend who's let out their mum's house, blah, blah, and... But their letting agent was clearly rubbish. And I said, you know, and they said, but they're Arlen. I said, well, no, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean anything when it comes to, to day-to-day practice. And they were clearly having problems with that tenancy. So um, I think it, it's like, I think you have to be, you know, when you live your life as a grown-up, you've got to have some basic responsibility and understanding. If you have a car, you know what your legal obligations are, you know, to get it MOT, to make sure you pass a license and you drive in a responsible way. And I think people go into owning a property with an awful lot less kind of understanding. But I think the issue is, how do you make that work? You you know, as a policy person, you say, absolutely, that's your objective there. But how do you get from there to there? Because getting from there to there is fraught with difficulty. So with letting agents, the great thing about letting agents, or well, no, the more problematic thing about letting agents because some of them are increasingly online and increasingly we don't even know kind of who they are. You know, there are a set of algorithms online. So how, how do you judge who is a letting agent who is capable of arranging a letting? Because the definitions of letting agent are all over the shop, aren't they? You know, so, so that's kind of problematic. So who is it that we're teaching? What is it that we need them to sort of know? I think that's that's the kind of the issue, isn't it? I mean, what 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 would you? How would you make it work? I've, I've long thought that um, we ought to teach some basic landlord and tenant law in schools, because most kids are going to go on to rent property, and they know nothing about it. But they don't know about the housing market at all. I mean, we, oh. I mean the level of education about housing. I mean, I'm a housing person. The level of education about housing is really, really poor. So, um, you know, understanding of different tenures and what they all mean and and those kinds of things can be, you know, really quite limited. I mean, they used to sort of teach centuries ago, they used to teach civics in school, which was kind of like about the law and local governance and things like that, to give you a basic understanding of the frame that you lived in as a society. And I think, you know, there's something around making people aware of those things. I think actually, we need to sort of go back to that because I think people don't quite understand the legal frameworks they live in sometimes. Um, yeah. and I, no, it does I agree with that. It does sort of underlie, you know, what when homes are very important. They are. And I, I just think, um, Tessa, also, you know, t- taking a step forward, if you are investing in property, whether you're using an agent or you're not, 
I do think you owe it to yourself to you, you know to to know what you're going into. Absolutely. Uh, and and even if you're using an agent, you know, your experience, Julie, is, is interesting. Mm. But yeah, you know, we get contacted all of the time where yeah, you know, my agent hasn't done something or I've not done this, that, and the other, and I've only just found out. Well, do you know mm. what? It's a really significant asset, even if you've only got one property. Mm. So you know, you owe it to yourself not to abdicate responsibility to your uh, uh, agent but to know as much as they are if for nothing else uh, as, as much as they do if for no other reason that you want you know you want to make sure that you know, you're yeah. keeping tabs on them and they're doing it properly because I think that people think that oh well I'll hand it over to an agent and then you know that's it yeah. where of yeah. course you know, uh, you know you couldn't be further from the truth on that you know even worse you know you're responsible for something that somebody has done badly on your behalf and you carry the can for it well it's all the yeah. more reason to to educate yourself and to make sure that you you, you mm. know what is required and when yeah i mean i think the, the the landlord register i think is an interesting sort of framework for thinking that is how you get information to people yeah. and also it sort of it tells people you know this is quite serious you know, this isn't just something that you can do tomorrow and think, oh, I'll just let my property out, not a big deal. And, you know, that's fine. It's actually quite a serious undertaking. That, yeah. that, and, and I think upping our discussion around that, you know, to, to that very informal end kind of needs to sort of come into the fold in a way and sort of say, you know, actually, this is quite serious business here. Um, you, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this lightly. Um, Julie, have you um, had any feedback from the Welsh scheme? Because um, Wales have had uh, licensing and, and mandatory training for self-managing landlords for, for a few years now. Have you mm. had any feedback as to how that's working? And, and, and likewise, Ben? I don't Ben's probably got a better feel than I have, because my, my kind of, um, I think the last time I looked at it, it was still quite early days. And also, I think to evaluate a scheme, you've kind of understand where it is you've come from and what it is you're achieving. I mean, that's one of the issues is sort of thinking, has it improved landlords kind of education? Then you've got to have a baseline to say, yeah, actually it's improved by this amount. So there's those kinds of things. I don't know, Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't think it's a bad scheme in, in, in principle, but yeah, we have some concerns about the accountability of Rent Smart Wales um, and actually the evaluation criteria, because I think, Julie, not a great, deal of regular evaluation of of what rent smart wales is doing and how it's working really takes place um and i think you add that towards a you know a, a guiding or the lack of a guiding strategy for the prs and this actually this isn't just a criticism of wales it's also a criticism of, of pretty much everywhere in in, mm. in in the uk but whilst we're talking in the wales perspective i think it you know those, those two things um i think are, are are big gaps and and i think generally from a landlord looking out they would think that landlords are actually paying more in uh, than they get out of of rent smart wales so i think i think there's more information that's needed to assess exactly how successful mm -hmm. rent smart wales is but i don't i don't disagree with the principle of it because you know it's a good way of 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 educating people and making sure that standards are raised i think we just have to learn from mm -hmm. you know from the initial years of the scheme how it how it's worked what the return has been what the benefits has been and we don't really see a lot of that yeah, maybe I mean, a future project fun. julie <laughs> oh like i can just like oh yeah this is money i can just do for whatever i want <laughs> you know there's a hundred things that i think we definitely need to know about the sector but chances of getting money to look at them are nil so it's very frustrating but exactly i think the questions that you're raising there ben are really important is what impact has it had on the market yeah. has it materially improved landlords education has it materially improved tenants experience of the sector does the sector work better are local authorities using the regulation to to do better level better and more more effective enforcement you know is the is the prs better in wales because of regulation that's what we want to know isn't it yeah. i so, mean all, all we know at the moment is that there's been a, a an unpredicted surplus from the scheme and it's not clear how that surplus is being used to answer those fundamental questions yeah. um because you know landlords will will begrudgingly pay but i do think there's an expectation that if there is a surplus that you know uh, collectively mm. a benefit is seen of 
of, of it, yeah. whether that's through education or uh, making uh, rights and responsibilities better known, whatever it is, that there ought to be that investment so that landlords don't feel like they're, or don't feel at least that they are, you know, a, a, a cash cow. I think people mm -hmm. want an improved sector. Um, uh, and actually, you know, as your sort of research says, you know, landlords are generally an, an obedient bunch when it comes to to, to, to paying their way but I, I think mm -hmm. if we've got a surplus there we ought to make sure that it's it's spent and costed um fairly and and, and appropriately and reinvested back into the into the sector mm -hmm. um yeah. Julia, I'm, I'm, I'm just conscious of time actually yeah. but one of the things I wanted to ask is maybe um you know we've had a good uh, uh discussion about some of the issues and and so forth you know if we did this um uh, uh in, in a few years time maybe um mm -hmm maybe when we next win uh, the the euros or something um or get into the final of the euros World cup next year yeah World yeah well, indeed yeah yeah well well maybe maybe a couple of years time Where, how do you think the sector will look you indicated that you think yeah we're in a period of change what do you yeah. think we, we are likely to see oh gosh i think that you can go way back into way, way forward into a very dystopian future let's go to a dystopian future <laughs> yeah, you know, where, where things have gone very badly wrong and i think what you might see there is a very residualized private rented sector so we've got lots of big shining which is great you know that that kind of su property supply from the the big institutional investors um, and they're going to deal with the middle market really really well but they might have less interest in the more problematic part of the market because those management responsibilities might be beyond what they want to spend so we know that that dealing with people um, on lower incomes, where there's vulnerabilities, that kind of activity, is, it takes quite a lot of personal investment of time. So what we might see then is, is, is people who can't access that bit, and, and let's be quite serious, can't access that because the algorithms say that they're too risky, so that the, the, the landlords are using algorithms to assess the risk that's attached to an individual. They're going to be in a residualized sector that actually nobody concerns about anymore because the, the big institutional investors have come, so do we not care? We don't care about that bit. So that bit over there is just going to be quite residual. There's going to be lots of very poor quality property. Criminal landlordism, I think, is, is likely to expand. So it's probably a growth area. Um, and, and that's kind of going to happen kind of over there. So that's kind of like, I mean, and we're talking way in the future. You know, we're not talking next week, but, but I don't see anything that's going to kind of stop that happening necessarily, unless we look to a bigger investment in social housing that will take um, a big part of that demand that the, these middle guys aren't necessarily interested in. Yeah. So they're saying, you know, okay, you know, we're interested in social housing um, rents. And we're thinking, yeah, but they have to be social housing rents. They can't just be property that's available. The housing market, housing benefit will cover the rent because that's still high. You know, housing benefit covered rent is still high compared with the social rent. And it's not a rent that somebody on a minimum wage can pay. So, you know, that's the issue that I see for the sector is that um, unless we start investing in social housing, then um, the market's going to configure itself in that particular way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Is that a bit dark? Is that a bit dark? It is a little it's bit a, dark. It's a bit dark. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't massively disagree with that. I think, um, you know, as I say, the PRS is being asked to do things it wasn't intended to to, to do and you, you know the only way really to address some of the difficulties around there around that and you know to be fair you know this is a call that's been going on for a good few years isn't it but you know it, it is around the need for more affordable homes to mm. be to be made available um but there are no signs of any appetite for that happening i know ministers talk about you know how many homes has been built but frankly it doesn't touch the sides in terms of what's mm. really needed um, so I, yeah, I do worry slightly that um, if there, you know, the, the PRS, I don't think is going to expand massively with some of the restraints mm. that are in place. So mm. where are the it's new? Also, it's from? also quite a big ask to to expect private individuals and private companies to deal with the big problems that you have with some of the lower end of the market. I mean, in a way, why should they? You know, yeah, I think that's it. I think I mean somebody was saying the other day, oh, we should we should we should force landlords to let at eight. You know, and I'm thinking, well, why? I mean, I literally wouldn't go into a shop and say, okay, I see it's a pound, but I'll pay you eighty p. You know, yeah. why should why should why should a re retailer just give it to you for less because you don't want to pay that 
you know, so I think we shouldn't be, I mean, there's some people want to serve that market, they can make it work and that's great. But I don't think um, we should be forcing landlords to to supply property at those lower price points if they don't want to. You know, you can't say that, you know, somebody's got their, their property in the middle of the market. Why on earth would they accept a lower rent than they would than they would secure ordinarily? And if um, you force them, they're going to sell up and go. Well, it just won't make any business sense necessarily. Yeah. So it's so it's I think. I think, you know, we've got to judge the appetite really much more accurately than we do. And I don't think we can force the PRS to do what it's not really built for. I think some some landlords, they're really, really happy in that market and they supply great products, that part of the market. But you can't force landlords to be in that part of the market because some of them just don't want to be. So your report um, did pick up on some things briefly, Julie, that, you know, that uh, that concern landlords that might make it more appealing that side of the market particularly things like direct payment and and those types of things which you know aren't massive uh asks i don't think and certainly some of the 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 dreadful tales of hardship that we've seen from from members over uh, during covid is where you know they uh, they have accepted um uh, a tenant on benefits as they as they should um uh but then all of a sudden that money has has stopped coming from the tenant and you have somebody living there that's retaining that universal credit or housing benefit and that you know uh, add uh, the eviction ban uh, to the yeah. mix has caused you know some real some very very severe difficulties and you know um, mm. we've been talking to Stephen Timms the chair of the um, uh, work and pension select committee around some of the findings there and around some of the experiences of landlords on on mm-hmm. on housing benefit and I do think there are some procedural things I think you might even have been on one of the um, the calls that mm-hmm. we had actually um, there are some procedural things that would make it um, that would that, that would take some of the concern away uh, for landlords yeah. if you will around that market which in certainly in the short term is probably likely to be helpful yeah exactly two things very quickly um it's all about tenant choice universal uh, universal credit why not give them the choice to have it paid direct yeah it makes no sense whatsoever but also making um a a portal for landlords that you know that allows the landlord to help the tenant to get access to information about tenant and to help the tenant who's having trouble with their their benefits because the landlord's completely cut out of this relationship um and it doesn't acknowledge actually sometimes the, the work that landlords often put into making that tenancy work you know cutting them out of that relationship i think is really really problematic just those two things on their own would make a huge difference i think probably we better draw it to a close there because we've been talking for quite a long time very interesting um, it's been been forever fascinating (laughs) i think we're going to have to have you back again julie if you'd be willing to come and and talk to us further on these issues but um i've enjoyed it very much no, it's been really interesting. So thanks ever so much for the invitation. And certainly, yes, I'll come back at another point. It's been very, very interesting. Wonderful. Okay, thanks, well, Julie. Thank you very much. Okay, Ben, that was a, that was a fascinating discussion, wasn't it? And what a lovely lady. Yeah, really lovely is 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 Julie. And I think um, you know, it, she brings a lot of intel to to the discussion i thought you know one of the the fascinating things she spoke about is the composition of landlords and and how you know uh, the the outside world may well you know confuse people like property developers as as being landlords and obviously you know they're 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 a little bit different but looking at the different groups your accidental landlord your uh you know people like me that have got a day job and have got property and in your big corporates and and a few others in between as well it just shows you um, there isn't a one-size-fits-all to landlordism, if that's even a word. Yeah, yeah, no, it was uh, it was a, a really interesting talk. So I hope everybody enjoyed it, and I hope you'll go and read um, Julie's report, which I will link in the um, in in the um, lawyer and landlord um, website post about this. Um, about this podcast so you can go and read it for yourselves yeah and it is well worth a read because she touches on uh, as we spoke about some really important elements as to how uh, some tweaks to the universal credit process can really really help uh, landlords and renters alike so i you know, i'd recommend everybody have a look at it and write to your mp and, <laughs> and and talk about those changes as as we are doing at the moment because i think it's um 
it's important that we iron out some of the wrinkles in what is a, becoming a very, very complex uh, process. So, yeah, please have a read. There is a huge amount of ignorance about renting property, the private rented sector, and Julie's report sheds a lot of light and, and help people understand it. And I hope, um, if there are any politicians listening, that you in particular will go and read it, because I think you'll find it very enlightening. Yeah. Okay, right. Well, um, we'll see you again. Um, actually, we're, we're not going to... No, we, we're, we're on holiday, not together, but uh, um, uh, I don't want to set rumours running, but we will be back in back in September, uh, uh, hopefully tanned and COVID-free, and we will see you then. We'll see you then. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.